Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Now I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and the patient endurance that is ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, when behind me I heard a voice like a trumpet, which said, Write what you see on a scroll, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among them was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet glowed like bronze in a furnace, and the sound of his voice was like rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I turned around and saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he reached out and touched me with his right hand and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what is going to take place. The secret of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Many of you know that my family and I live directly across the street that way, right across 8th Street from the church. I love the convenience of being that close to work. My mailbox is directly en route between my front door and the the church here, and so it has just become a habit that each day as I walk home from the office, I step out into the street, I grab the handle, and I pull that box open, and I check it for mail. Like yours, most of my mail is bills and advertisements, but occasionally I find something personal 
in there. And you can usually tell immediately because the, the personal stuff usually is addressed by hand. I'm always intrigued whenever I get something in the box that is uh, personal, that has somebody's handwriting on it. This time of year, you can guess what 90% of those personal things will be. Graduation announcements, right? Yeah, it's that time of year when we're celebrating all these great things that are happening in the lives of young adults. It's fun to see all the kids that we have known here and scattered all across the country who are growing up and becoming young adults, graduating from high schools and colleges all over the country. But this year I kind of had one of those moments when I realized that I had hit middle age head on because I started looking at the pictures of the kids and I said to Laura, they can't possibly be this old. It was just a couple of years ago that they were. And my kids looked at me and said, middle-aged, try old. Yeah. Mm. Oh, well. We all like to get mail. The, but do you have somebody that you most like to get mail from? If you ask the Purcell kids who they most like to get mail from, the answer is their grandparents. Usually there is some kind of a gift slash money in there for the kids. I understand their motives here. Uh, what if you went to your mailbox one day, filtered through all the Costco flyers and the Cable One bills and the direct TV ads, and you found a letter that was addressed to you and claimed to have been written by Jesus himself? I would immediately assume that it was a hoax. Somebody thought, oh, this would be a funny joke on the preacher. We'll send him a letter from Jesus, someone trying to be funny. But what if it wasn't? What if Jesus actually sent a personal message to you? What if he sent one to us, the, the congregation of First Church of the Nazarene of Lewis and Idaho? If Jesus wrote us a letter, what do you think he might put in that thing? i got to tell you, if Jesus sent us a form letter, I'd be really disappointed. If he sent us a chain letter, I'd be about half mad. And if he sent us a Christmas letter telling us what everyone in the family had done in the last year, we would never get through it, right? I don't think Jesus would choose any of those formats, but if he were to write us a letter, what do you think it might say? Because, I mean, he knows us. He knows all of us. He knows our past, the struggle in the early days of this congregation to, to grow enough and to become strong enough to support ourselves, the glory days, whenever you think those may have occurred, the division, the gains, the losses, the joys, the sorrows. He knows all of that. The obedience, the sin, the good pastors, the not-so-good pastors. And exactly where Bill and Aaron and I fit in that continuum waits to be seen. He knows all of us. He knows our present condition, too, both our needs and our strengths. And so I wonder what it is that he would say, knowing us as he does, if he were to write us a letter. It's all speculation. There is no way for us to know, really. But the Bible's New Testament does include some personal letters from Jesus himself, to seven different local churches. And simply by reading them, we can find out what Jesus had to say to those churches. But if you've been around the church much in your life, you've probably heard people say that Christians believe that the Bible is inspired. And when they say that, 
Some people mean that they believe that the Bible was given by verbal dictation from God through these passive human instruments who simply wrote down whatever it is that God told them to write word for word. The Church of the Nazarene does not believe that and never has. What we do believe and always have believed is that God has always had a message to convey to the human race and that his Holy Spirit has worked with three groups of people to make sure that that message was conveyed accurately all the way down through time. The first group was the writers of Scripture. God made sure that the writers of Scripture got to know him well enough that they would recognize what he was trying to communicate through them to other people and that they would then sit down and write, filled with the Holy Spirit, relying on the Holy Spirit to guide their, guide their thoughts and their word choices. But inspiration did not stop with the writers. We also believe that God worked with a second group to make sure that his message would get conveyed accurately to the church down through time. And that was working through what are called the great church councils. Over the first few hundred years of Christianity, the Christian church pulled together leaders from all over the known world. And they would gather to examine what amounted to hundreds and hundreds of texts that were um, uh, making the rounds through churches in the various parts of the known world. There was some truth that was being taught. There was some error that was being taught. And so several times through those first hundred years, the church would pull together the great councils. They would find the folks who very clearly were leaders among God's people and almost always... Suffering was a prerequisite for leadership. Those who had bled, those who had been imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, have a vested interest in it remaining pure. And so they would call together the leaders from around the globe for these great councils. It was an amazing sacrifice. Many people had to walk to get there, up to two years of travel to get to wherever the great council was going to be held. Sometimes a handful of years of discussion and prayer and arguing and, you know, people are people. So it broke uh, out into fistfights on occasionally. It was like church and a hockey game together at the <laughs> at the big councils. Some people didn't survive the trip back home. They would give years of their lives to these councils, believing that God's Holy Spirit could guide people into the truth, but that the church together would work to safeguard those truths that God had given to them through inspired writers in generations past. But inspiration did not stop with the great councils. There's a third group of people that, through whom God has always worked in order to get his message across accurately. And it's you. It's the readers of Scripture. God got the right ideas into the hearts and minds of the writers long ago, and he helped the members of the great councils determine truth from error many years ago. And, and ever since then, ever since then, he has met with and worked with the hearts and minds of every person who will approach the Bible with a teachable spirit. And he says, let me guide you into all truth. That's what we mean when we say that the Bible is inspired. And because of that belief, we read the letters of the New Testament with an eye for what they can say to us, believing that once we've come to understand what it meant to its original audience, we can then understand what it can mean to us in our life's situation. So today, 
Let's read somebody else's mail. Let's do that together over the next few weeks and understand that as we do so, God the Holy Spirit is going to meet with us every bit as much as he did with great councils and every bit as much as he did with men who sequestered themselves to their private little rooms to listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit and write down what his Spirit said to them. From these very old texts, God is going to breathe a new message into our hearts and into our minds that become his personal message to you and I. You want that? I do. As a sign of our respect for the process that God leads his church through as we read his word, would you please stand with me? We're going to read from the Bible's last book, as Tom did. It's titled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And I want to begin with the first verse of chapter 2. He read to us chapter 1. Let's begin with chapter 2, verse 1. But first, Lord, we're counting on you to do what you've done millions of times, billions of times before, to meet with readers. We're confident that you spoke to writers. We're thankful for people who paid the price in the councils. But Lord, all of that amounts to nothing if we can't hear your voice in these words that we read. So we ask, Holy Spirit, come one more time and inspire the readers. In your name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands that Tom told us about. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet... I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Remember what he said the lampstand was? The lampstand was the church. He said, you won't get to be a church anymore. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. By the way, scholars don't have any idea who the Nicolaitans were. We lost that one, okay? Just don't be one. Um, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who's victorious, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When most people think of the book of Revelation, they don't think of personal letters to churches. They think of Revelation as high-octane prophecy or apocalyptic messages of doom. A ton of popular Christian books over the last century have not helped with any of those notions. Uh, A little truth in advertising, Revelation does include some apocalyptic messages, but apocalypse doesn't mean gloom and doom and destruction. Apocalypse is a Greek word from the theater that means to draw aside the curtain, thus revealing the star of the show. Ta-da! Is what the word revelation means. Hence the English name of the book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. 
reveal him, show him to the crowd as the star of the show. It's intended to show in this world and in this life, Jesus Christ as the glorious being that he is, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And the book begins with letters from Jesus to seven churches in ancient Turkey, which really had become the center of Christianity in the first century. So let's understand and make sure that we do so, understand the context, then let's dive into the first letter and let the Holy Spirit guide us to understand its meanings in our setting. As I mentioned, Turkey, very much the center of Christianity, very early in the first Christian century. And so what we have here is Jesus writing letters to the headquarters of his church, on earth. The churches in the most prominent cities each got a letter, and the first letter went to Ephesus, a church that the apostle Paul had planted and then pastored for three years. Paul also had written a letter to that church. It's found in the the New Testament as the letter to the Ephesians. But this is the letter from Jesus to the church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2 opens with this letter from Jesus to a church. And he opens it in a way that seems weird to us. The text says that the message is actually addressed to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Did you know your church had an angel? Where do they keep them? Why is he hiding all the time to the angel of the church at Ephesus? Hmm. The, The Greek word angelo, which we have always translated as angel, really just means messenger. And that can seem a little spiritually trippy, but then again, the Bible never seems to apologize for being either spiritual or a little bit trippy. So if you're reading for something other than a spiritual guide, and and if you're going to insist that everything make perfect logical sense, then you need to find another book to read because the Bible is spiritually trippy, okay? It's going to stretch you a little bit as you read it. Whatever else it means, this first sentence in the letter means that God had a message for the church in Ephesus, and he had appointed two messengers, both of whom were charged with the responsibility of making sure that the message got there and that it got heard, and one of those messengers was some spiritual being called an angel, and the other was Jesus' good friend, John. Somehow the two of them were supposed to help open the eyes of the Jesus followers in Ephesus to the message that we're going to read today. It brings us to the message itself. The message from Jesus to his Ephesian followers started out with, with some good and encouraging stuff. Jesus had been watching them, and he'd noticed some good things. Don't you love it when you get caught doing something right? Do you ever have a, a teacher or a coach or a boss who all they could ever see was the things that you were doing wrong? But then did you ever have one of those folks in your life that they were constantly looking for a chance to encourage you, see you doing something right and made sure that they called it to your attention? There's a little bit of that in Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus. He said, I've noticed some good things among you. First of all, hard work. Know this, Jesus values hard work in the interest of his church's mission. Whenever you roll up your sleeves week after week and help make ministry happen in the name of Jesus in this world, it makes Jesus happy. He notices it and he loves it. The converse is also true. When you refuse or or never get around to helping in the kingdom enterprise, because the other stuff just, you know, is the priority in your schedule, he notices that too. 
But there are three things that you have to know about hard work for the kingdom in order to understand hard work from Jesus' point of view. And the first is this, hard work, even for Jesus, will not save you. It won't. We are saved by grace through faith. It means that we don't deserve to be saved, and no matter how hard we worked, we work, we can never bring about our own salvation. And Jesus, knowing full well that we are unworthy of it, said, you're still worth it to me. He extends grace, better treatment than we deserve to us. And all it takes on your part is not a bunch of hard work in order to pay him back, but instead, simple faith. Just believe that there's grace for you. And you can be saved from hell in eternity and a hellish life in the here and now. Jesus loves it when he sees his people working hard in the interest of the kingdom enterprise. But hard work, even for Jesus, will not save you. We must also then uh, admit that refusal to work hard for Jesus won't damn you. So, um, I don't know. Um, You know, they took away my trump card (laughs) for trying to get uh, help with family promise, Steve. uh, He took away my trump card when he said that he wouldn't damn people for not working hard. Go figure. If hard work isn't a way of being saved and it isn't a way of being damned, what in the world is it? Plain and simply, it's a way of making God's heart happy or of acting like that just doesn't matter to you. Jesus wrote a pretty short letter to the church at Ephesus. He he didn't mention very many things. But among the things that he chose to mention was, I've seen your hard work. Thumbs up. He also mentioned that he had noticed their patient endurance. Endurance means that we decide that we will get through the difficult stuff in life and refuse to give up rather than waiting to see if we're going to make it. Let me say that again. Endurance is deciding ahead of time that we are going to get through the hard stuff by refusing to give up rather than just waiting to see if we make it. I got news for you. If you wait to see whether you're going to make it through life's hard stuff, I don't like your odds. You'll get discouraged. You'll probably start to withdraw from your uh, support systems a little bit. And in isolation, man, the enemy is way stronger than you, way more persistent than you. I do not like your odds on your own. If you wait to see if you're going to get through life's hard stuff, I don't know. I'm not going to tell you. Why don't you just quit now? I'm not going to say that. I'm going to tell you, um, I don't know. I'll pray for you. Endurance is deciding ahead of time that with the help of God's Holy Spirit, I will not give up. I am going to get through the dark days. I'm going to get through the heavy days. I'm going to get through the ugly days. I'm going to get through all of the days with my faith intact. I decided ahead of time because I know the power that's made available to me by God's Holy Spirit. Endurance means we decide that we'll get through the the difficult stuff in life and refuse to give up rather than waiting to see if we're going to make it. But listen, endurance isn't something you find out you had after the fact. It's a decision you make early on in the experience of life's hard stuff. You had to have endurance at the beginning to have endurance at the end. But God didn't praise mere endurance among the Ephesians. Did you notice that? He praised them because they did it with patience, meaning this. They made a mature and gracious decision 
not to whine and complain all the time that life didn't go the way they wanted it. He, he didn't praise them for just getting through it. He said that you have endured, let me find the exact wording. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. And now verse 3, you've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary in doing so. Another translation, just put it simply, patient endurance. Meaning this, they made a, a gracious and mature decision not to whine and complain all the time about not getting life on the terms that they wanted it. Knowing that there would be a satisfying reward in heaven, they were willing to be patient in this life and wait for that rather than whining about why they had it so hard in the here and now. Listen, this is a lesson I need to learn. And I want to ask, will you commit to learning it with me? Let's not be the endurance church. The church that says, oh, I guess we'll get through this somehow. Let's be the patient endurance church. The one that says, what is there really to complain about in light of the glory that is to come? In light of the good things that he's promised, what is this light and momentary suffering for us? Let's not be the endurance church. Let's be the patient endurance church. Amen? Say it like you mean it. Good, good. Jesus said uh, to the Ephesians, I've noticed your hard work, I've noticed your patient endurance, and he also said, I've noticed your commitment to spiritual discernment and truth. Listen, anyone who taught error in Ephesus did not get by with it. By the way, whenever you come across that idea or that that phrase, false teacher or false prophet uh, or false teaching in the Bible, it's almost always referring to people who teach falsehoods about Jesus' true identity. Uh, that, that phrase, false teacher, wasn't about any error in, um, in any number of kinds of errors. Almost exclusively, the phrase false teacher was directed at those who were saying, Jesus isn't who you think he is. And they would go to war against one of two aspects of Jesus' true identity. They'd either say, he's not really a god. Or they would say, he's not really a human. He was faking it which makes him what? No example for us. Oh, yeah, and a liar. Hand of everyone who wants to be the dedicated disciples of the liars in the world. Right. False teachers in Ephesus were never tolerated. You, you might, um, listen, I, I've been a pastor for almost 20 years now, and um, somebody asked me this week, if I ever went back and listened to or read any of the sermons that I preached years ago, I do, and it's a horrible thing. It is absolute. I have a lot of people to apologize for. That, that, that poor church in Connell that gave me my start, those people listened to me saying some of the dumbest things from the pulpit. And they'd look at me and say, that was a good sermon, Pastor. <laughs> and that was the most gracious lie that man ever told. I look back at some of the things that I said in some of my, my elementary foolish, immature understandings of the Scripture. And that church in Connell, they put up with it. You know why? Because it wasn't false teaching. False teaching and a false teacher is somebody who says, I've got an agenda here. I'm going to uh, knock Jesus out of the saddle. He's no longer going to be the God, and he's, or, or he's going to be such a God that no man can ever really connect with him, and, and we're not going to... We're, we're going to see to it that this church uh, maybe cools it a little bit on the Jesus 
stuff. Not the church in Ephesus. People who taught either that Jesus wasn't really God or that he wasn't truly human were both stripped of authority in the Ephesian church and shown to the door without apology. The young teachers coming up, they uh, corrected them along the way. The false teachers, boot to the back end, there's the door, don't come back. Hmm. Jesus said he liked that, by the way. It's one of the good things he noticed in the church. Finally, he said, among the things that I've seen that I like is that you've been my representatives. Jesus saw the Ephesians' hard work. He saw their patient endurance. He saw their commitment to spiritual discernment and truth. And he could see that they really were doing all these things as his representatives. We're we're doing all this in your name, Jesus. Doing it for you. Doing your work in this world. Sounds like a pretty solid church, doesn't it? I mean, the people in that church would work hard to make Jesus' ministry happen in their city. They did it without whining and complaining, even when people came down on them hard for what they were doing. They became students of the truth so that they wouldn't fall for the lies. They rooted that stuff out immediately and permanently, and they went around telling everyone that the reason that we do this is because of Jesus. The reason we're doing all this great stuff that we're doing is because of Jesus. Solid. That's a solid church. I want to be a part of a church like that. But it was to that solid church that Jesus said, I have something against you. Just feel that for a minute. The God who said, I no longer hold men's sins against them. The Jesus whose death made it possible for forgiveness. That Jesus said to the Ephesians church, I've seen what you've been doing. Lots of great stuff. I have something against you. That's the worst news you'll ever hear in your life, folks. If the, if the being in the universe who is the very best at forgiving has something that he holds against you, you better figure out what that thing is real quick and deal with it. Because it becomes this thing that can separate you forever from God. If the forgiver holds something against you, this is trouble. You feeling that a little bit? the opposite of forgiveness. After all the the stunningly horrible stuff that God has forgiven, what on earth could be so awful that he would feel the need to send a human messenger and some sort of angelic being to a church in some little city in Turkey and say, I have found something that I hold against you. Here it is. He said, you've forsaken your first love. You don't love me anymore, and I know it. I cannot imagine what it must have felt like to hear that. You show up for church one Sunday morning in Ephesus. The pastor, uh, Timothy probably at this point, said, hey, we got a letter. And they said, oh, from Paul? No. Better yet, we got a letter from Jesus. Open it up, Timothy, let's hear it. It's going to be a good day in church. Dear church at Ephesus, you're doing lots of good things. I thought we were. Awesome. Jesus likes what we're doing. Awesome. I can't wait till we get to the end. Maybe he's like Faith's grandpa and he sends money. Since we're doing all the right things. I can't imagine what it was like that day to sit in the church and get halfway through the letter and hear Jesus say, but I've got something against you. I bet it was devastating. Listen. 
I work hard to take care of my family. I cannot imagine coming home one day and hearing Laura say, Cliff, I recognize that you're a good provider. You're a good example to our kids and you know, when it comes to ethics and morals. You're a good dad. You show up at as many of their activities as you possibly can. You help the kids with their homework. You teach them what's right and what's wrong. You're responsible toward us. You don't, you don't complain about having to work hard to take care of us. You, and you do it all for our sake. There's just this problem. You don't love me anymore, and I know it. Rock my world, people. If that were to happen, I, I would experience it in one of two ways. Since I really do love Laura with all of my heart, since I know that with, with all that I am, it would hurt unbelievably to hear her level that charge against me. And I would wonder how it is that I had failed to communicate it. It would be a staggering blow to me. But if she was right, and if I really didn't love her anymore, but was just going through the motions because you, you know, kind of sort of have to for a while. If I didn't really love her and she figured it out, I'd have a decision to make. Either to keep on going through the motions or to leave her. Or, there's a third option, go to a marriage counselor and learn how to repair this relationship and how to love my wife again. The Ephesians faced the very same options in their relationship with Jesus on the day that he said, you don't love me, and I know it. There's a warning in this passage for our church. We're a doing church. We serve. We're becoming known for it in this valley. Can we use more helpers and leaders and servers? Always, always. But we serve as a church. We're good at it. It has come to fit us well. But there is a question that we need to keep asking ourselves. Why do we do these things? Is it because we think we have to or ought to? Or is it a very real expression of a very real love for Jesus? Listen. Mere responsibility never won a single heart. It's, it's made for millions of marriages of convenience, but it has never won a single heart. Responsibility hasn't. There never was a smash hit country song with a chorus that says, I'll do what's right by you because I ought to. It's just the way things are done. There will be now, of course, because I'll be working on it all week. Listen, first and as we, we must be very careful and often check the temperature of our relationship with Jesus. It is best served hot. Our serving is to be fueled by a passionate love for God, not mere responsibility or a sense of ought or in hopeful exchange for a place in heaven. We serve because of a white, hot, holy love for the God who overlooked so many things in us, and chose to forgive us and to welcome us to himself. Love is the only tolerable motive from the perspective of Jesus. And this is not the only place in the Bible that Jesus says it. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, he says the same thing. It's recorded near the end of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said there will be all kinds of people who say, Jesus, we did all the right stuff, ministry stuff, and we did it in your name. And do you know what I'm going to tell them, Jesus said? I'm going to say, sure, 
but you don't even know me. And I don't know you. There's no love here. There's an empty form or shell of a relationship. You thought I wanted you to be responsible toward me? I wanted you to love me! Well, it sounds like a million marriages we've known over the years, doesn't it? I said just a moment ago that there's a warning for us in this passage, and the warning is this. Losing your first love can be deadly. Jesus described it as falling from a great height. Last week, Jared Yeoman sat right up here in that big white chair sharing his I am second story, and he told us some incredible stories. But but near the end of his testimony, he told us about falling from atop a building that he was constructing onto the frozen earth below, and it snapped his pelvis in two and messed him up very severely. In the ambulance, they thought they were losing him, and Jared himself knew he was dying, but God spared his life. We're thankful for that. He still suffers, he said, a little bit of paralysis in his left hand, but he's otherwise recovered. He fell from a great height. Late this winter, Brooke Schatz fell from a similar height. It snapped both bones in his lower leg. It dislocated his knee. Uh, it, it exploded his ankle into more than 100 pieces, not to mention all the soft tissue damage. We have very real life examples among us that show us what falling from a great height can do. Falling from a great height does great damage. It can cause paralysis and death. We simply cannot afford to lose our love for the Savior. To the sufficiently wise, the presence of these two men among us is not proof that you can get by with falling. It's a powerful reminder to keep stoking our passionate love for God so that we do not fall. Hmm? Hey, Lewiston First Church of the Nazarene. Hear what the Spirit says to our church today. Keep serving. I'm pleased when you do that. And I love it when you don't complain. It's a sign that you're growing up in your faith. Study my word so that you won't be deceived by the false messages of the culture around you. They're lying to you about all sorts of things by calling good evil and evil good. Keep doing those things. That stuff's all great, but but it amounts to nothing if you don't really love me. The Spirit of Jesus says to our church today, all your serving counts for nothing If you don't love me, it's what I really want. I want you to love me. I love you for real. I want you to love me back for real, not just say it. It breaks my heart when you just go through the motions with me and you say that you're doing it for me. More than anything, I want you to love me. We, meaning every single one of you and I, need to take this message very seriously. If we too quickly dismiss it, saying to ourselves, I love Jesus, this message is for other people, we will eventually fall into this sin. Or maybe it means that we already have. If we too quickly dismiss the question. Let me ask you a question. Is the Holy Spirit speaking to you today? Do you feel a discomfort in your gut or in your chest? 
If you do, let me help you with that. Don't dismiss it. Instead, take your direction from verse 5, which tells us two things. Here's how you deal with that discomfort right in here that, that, that is the voice of God's Holy Spirit saying, warning. He said, if you recognize this, that there's a first love issue, do two things. Number one, repent. I wish I, the word got misused. The word repent got misused. Sometime in the 1950s, they started making movies where there was some nut job on a crowded city street wearing a sandwich board that said, repent, the end of the world is near. And he was always, you know, that crazed lunatic looking guy that nobody wanted to befriend and nobody wanted to heed his message. And always in the movies, nobody ever heeded the message. They just ran away from the crazy guy. I realize I might look a little bit like him today because of the... Ah! So can I just say to you, a quiet, respectful, repent. It means whichever direction you're headed, if you have the ugh in your heart that is the work of God's Holy Spirit saying, warning, just whatever direction you're facing right now, turn and go the other direction. Because when you turn and go the other direction, you're going to run headlong into God. Repent means turn from your sins and face God. Not as in face God who's going to be doing this, but face God who's going to be doing this. Come here. Repent means turn from your sin, turn toward God. But verse 5 also said, if if you have that, that, that is the warning from God's Holy Spirit in your heart, repent, and then do the things you did at first. Meaning, back when your love was passionate enough that you did crazy things because of it as illustrated by the dating life of Cliff and Laura Purcell. Sorry, I didn't check with you before I... uh, Okay, here we go. I'll apologize later, babe. Uh, Five-hour phone calls, back when you had to pay for every minute. Remember that? Yeah. Um, I one time drove 15 miles from, from Laura's parents' house to mine with my head outside the window of the car because it was snowing so hard that the windshield wipers couldn't get it off of the window. And I drove 15 miles like the dog with my head hanging out the car. Because she was worth it! Crazy love for that girl. I went without sleep, I don't know how many nights, just because I had to get up early to go to work, but I went to spend every moment that I could with her. I spent every penny I had. I was a cheap jerk before I met Laura. Then I gave every penny I ever had to her because it was worth it just to be with her. My own mother called me Ebenezer Scrooge, but not when I was around Laura. I one time went out after one of those famous uh, Midwest ice storms. The entire world was coated with a full inch of ice. I took a, a piece of plexiglass and a soft mallet to my Oldsmobile and chipped ice until I could get one of the doors open because I was going to Laura's house. I bought jewelry. I daydreamed about what it would be like when, when I'd finally get to spend forever with her. And I looked for new ways to tell her that I loved her. Those were, those were the things that crazy, foolish, passionate young people do when they are in love. Jesus said, I've had all the responsible I can take as a substitute for what hot, holy, passionate desire for me. Church, 
hear what the Spirit says to the church. It's the Spirit of Christ. He gives a very simple message. Love me. And if at any level you sense that you don't love him like you once did, just turn around, turn away from that. Start doing the crazy love kind of things that you did when you first came to know him. When you were crazy enough to invite your friends to church. When you were crazy enough to talk to people about the Bible and the things that you learned. When you were crazy enough to walk up to people and say, how can I pray for you? When you're crazy enough to be an interfering neighbor who inserted yourself into the lives of the people next door just because you, you had a burden for their hearts and their souls. Jesus said, turn around if you're facing the wrong direction, and then just go back to doing the things you did when you were crazy in love with me. All my love, Jesus. Stand with me, please, and bow your heads and close your eyes. Lord, as we... Uh, Recognize that we are bowing in your presence today. We want to we want to speak to Jesus. Father, we speak to you a lot. We uh, we always talk in terms of the Holy Spirit being here among us whenever we gather. Jesus, you said you would be too. Just a couple, three of us would gather. Thank you for writing us a letter. Thank you for noticing the good stuff. There's a lot of good stuff. I'm glad that you are pleased with so many things that you see. Lord, we want to get quiet for just a moment and ask that you would speak to our hearts. Because if you need to say, I have something against you, you don't love me anymore. We really do need and want to hear it, if it's true. So we listen for your voice. Why don't you keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment, and I'm going to offer you a couple of options. I'm going to ask uh, Pastor Bill to just kind of come to the front here, and um, Pastor Aaron, if you can come to the other side here. And um, if you know there's just something you need to talk with the Lord about and you want a pastor to pray with you, then as we close the service, you can come and meet with either of the pastors. They'd be more than glad to pray with you. But again, keeping your heads bowed and your eyes closed, um, how about this? If you just, you don't want to have a little talk about it, but you want your pastor to pray for you, and you recognize there's a love that's grown cold, and you sure would like your pastors to help pray for uh, some fresh wind and fresh fire in your spirit. Why don't you just slip your hand up in the air and right back down. We'll pray for you. Okay, yep, I see those hands. Lots of them. Yep, yep, yep. Just so you know, it's happened in my life too. It has. Anybody else? All right, let's pray. I guess repentance begins with us confessing our sin 
Lord, our love has grown cold. Forgive us, please. Like you promised in your word, please. I think that's really what you wanted. It's why you wrote the letter. It wasn't a divorce notice. It was you saying, we can still make this work. Love me again. And so we're responding to, to that call, and we, we come back your direction today, turning from whatever other direction we were facing, and we come to you, and we say, Lord Jesus, we profess our love for you again today. We, we renew our vows, but we need a little bit of help here. We need your Spirit who lives within us to fan some, some coals back into flames in our hearts. When we read in the scriptures of the coming of your Holy Spirit, it wasn't some expiring coal hovered above the heads of the worshipers. It was flames. So we ask for your Spirit to come, fan those embers back into flame in our lives. Then I just pray that since you've got our attention, Holy Spirit, you would point out to us some of those things we used to do Maybe they didn't even make the list of the things that, that I said, but I'm asking that your spirit, for each one of us, since you know us well, you would point back to the things that indicated the white, hot, holy, passionate love when we first came to know the things you want to see, receive, and experience with us again. We listen for your voice. As you wish, Lord Jesus. Would you do your part in keeping this re- this relationship refreshed and renewed? Each time we hear your call, we'll keep coming back your direction. We thank you that your love for us never grew cold all the while. In your holy name we pray. Amen.